Welcome to the City of Refuge podcast, where our mission is to equip a diverse community of Christ followers to make him known. Good morning, church. Um, As we look to God's word this morning, would you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, today in your word, we're going to hear about how Jesus appeared at the transfiguration with robes dazzling white, whiter than any launderer could make them. And Lord, as we were singing this song this morning, I remember how in Zechariah you tell us that our clothes before you are filthy rags, but that you, by the power of your great love, have clothed us in robes of righteousness. Lord Jesus, there is nothing but your blood for us to put our hope in. And so, Lord, now we have one response to listen to you, beloved Son of God. Amen. So in our study of Mark, we've spent most of our time journeying with Jesus and his disciples as they have traveled around the area adjacent to the Sea of Galilee. We've seen Jesus heal all sorts of illness. We've heard him preach about the kingdom of heaven. We've heard him call people from all walks of life to follow him. We've seen him rejected by his community and his family. We've seen him confront the false doctrines of those in authority. And last week, Jesus has made his way north to Caesarea of Philippi. And here in this land that was known historically for the worship of Roman and Greek gods, Peter has made an important profession of faith. That Jesus is the son of God, the Christ. But following Peter's declaration, Jesus has given them some very mysterious and hard news. That the Son of Man is going to suffer under the hand of the authorities and die, but will rise again in three days. And not only this, Jesus continues and he says, If you are going to continue to follow me, you must deny yourself and take up your cross. These are really challenging words. And I imagine that the disciples had heavy hearts, maybe disappointed about this this Jesus not being the Messiah that they thought he would be. Maybe fearful of their own safety, fearful of Jesus' safety, the one that they loved. And I know for many of us, we can identify with this place of a heavy heart today. From things going on in our world, from things going on in our church. So we sit here. And yet Jesus calls us to follow him. So when we look at Mark 9, it's really different than what we've studied before. Mark 9 is actually a turning point in the gospel of Mark. Geographically, as I mentioned, Jesus and his disciples have made his way, their way up as far north as they will go. And now will summit in the mountains near probably Mount Hebron. Mount Hebron is an important mountain of imagery in the Bible. In Psalm 42, it's the mount that King David recalls to help his downcast soul remember the Lord. And it's also the place where the mountain streams form together to form the head of the Jordan River that make their way down to the Sea of Galilee. 
So after summiting here in the mountains, as pictured in this picture there, you can see it from the, the Sea of Galilee, they're going to make their southern descent into Jerusalem where Jesus will fulfill the words that he has spoken, that the Son of Man must suffer and die and will rise again. And here, Jesus' teaching focus also changes. Remember how he was preaching to the multitudes, to the 5,000 to the 4,000, and to many crowds that pressed in so much that oftentimes he would have to escape in a boat. Well, here in Mark 9, it says in verse 31 that he avoids the crowds so that he can teach his disciples. Now, the word disciples is not a word that we use in our society today outside of the church. The Greek word for it is mathetes, and it means to be a student or to be an apprentice. And in ancient times, people would leave their family, they would leave their work in order to live with their master teacher, their rabbi. And they would learn from his teachings by hearing them on the day-to-day. They would learn how to emulate his actions and deeds by following his example. And so now, as we turn in Mark 9... We, too, will follow along with Jesus and his disciples as he teaches about what this discipleship road will mean. Remember, he said that to follow him, they must deny themselves and take up their cross. And in this intimate conversation, Jesus will spell that out for us. So let's look now, and we'll be reading from Mark 9, starting with verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is a good thing we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what he was saying, because they were terrified. And a cloud then overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud and said, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So here in these high mountains, Jesus is transfigured before them. The one who has lived with them day to day, who they ate with and they touched and they ministered with, is now in the full eminence of God's glory before their very eyes. And amazingly, Moses and Elijah show up. Now there's two significant aspects I'd like to point out about Elijah and Moses' presence at the transfiguration. The first is this that they are Old Testament representatives. Moses represents the Old Testament law. And Elijah represents the Old Testament prophet. And when they're seen here with Jesus, what they are saying and symbolizing is that the Old Testament law and all of its righteousness is fulfilled in Jesus. And the Old Testament prophets that for hundreds of years were pointing to the Messiah is fulfilled in Jesus. But not only this, Moses and Elijah's presence at this mountaintop help us to remember their own mountaintop experiences, right? 
So if you remember, Moses received the Ten Commandments up on Mount Sinai with God. And Elijah on Mount Carmel calls down from heaven fire onto the altar, defeating the prophets of Baal and showing everyone, as his name means, that Yahweh is God. But unlike Moses and Elijah, who had to hide their face before the glory of God, the disciples are seeing Jesus right before their very eyes in all of the imminence of God's glory. And appropriately, they are terrified. And to top it all off, all of a sudden, there's a voice that's heard from the heaven. Now remember, the Father's voice has already been heard in the gospel at the time of Jesus' baptism when the Father says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And these words commission Jesus' ministry. And now the Father speaks again and says, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. And these words both confirm Peter's confession that Jesus is the Son of God and also commence Jesus' journey now to the cross. And God, the Father, says about God the Son, He is my beloved. I've sent him to you with divine authority because he is God. And God's, the Father's command is clear. Listen to him. You see, when we truly recognize in our hearts who Jesus is as the beloved Son of God, we can only have one right response, and that is to listen to him. When we listen to Jesus, it confirms our love for him. As it says in scripture, if you truly love him, you will obey him. And it also shows that we trust him and that we acknowledge who he is as a son of God if we are willing to submit to him. So this passage points out the first steps along the road of discipleship. To follow Jesus means that we have to accept him as the beloved son of God. He is our rabbi. And we have to listen to him. And then, as suddenly as they appeared, they were all gone. Moses, Elijah, the voice. And there dramatically, you can imagine it as if it were a movie. All they see is Jesus. And Jesus, like Moses, who had come down from the mountains only to find that all of the Israelites were getting it all wrong and committing idolatry, Jesus comes down from the mountains now to the rest of his disciples, realizing that they are also in a misguided mishap. They are trying to cure a boy of a demon, and it's not working. These same disciples that were commissioned by their rabbi to go out and cast out demons and who had returned with great rejoicing in their success are now stymied. And they don't know what's going on. And Jesus has some harsh words for him. He confronts them saying, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? And while the disciples are still puzzling over their seemingly inability to cure this young boy and their inability to have the faith that Jesus wants them to have, Jesus here stops and addresses this family 
and meets them right in their suffering. This desperate father recounts how since their son was very young, he's watched this evil spirit come and torment him, throwing him into the fire so that they watch their precious child be burned and throws them into the water so that their child's almost drowned. And he comes with this desperate plea saying, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus replies, if you can, all things are possible for anyone who believes. And immediately, one of Mark's favorite words, the father of the child cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. And so seeing these parents' faith, Jesus reaches down with compassion and courage right into the darkness of their suffering. But not only that, he meets them at the level of their faith, even if it's faith as small as a mustard seed. And their faith that's somewhere between belief and doubt. And here, in the midst of all of this uncertainty, Jesus comes and he heals them and he restores them. And where are the disciples? Well, they're still puzzling over their lack of faith and their inabilities. And, and so later they ask him, what is going on? They say, why could we not cast him out? And Jesus replies with these simple words, this kind can only be driven out with prayer. Jesus says here that unless we remain in the prayerful presence of the Lord, we have no power over spiritual darkness. As disciples of Jesus, we cannot just mimic the good things that he does that are in our own strength. We must submit all things to the Lord in prayer and allow God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to work through us and in us. This passage reminded me of Mother Teresa's ministry. She would actually oftentimes correct people who said that she had a ministry to the poor, and she said, no, 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 no. I have a ministry of prayer. And there's a story in which she was bandaging up a poor man's oozing wounds. And someone said to her, you know, I, I would never do that. And she said, and neither would I. She said this about prayer. God speaks in the silence of the heart and we listen. And then we speak to God from the fullness of our heart, and he listens. And this listening and speaking is what prayer is meant to be. God is not an intangible, unknowable spirit. But God, triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is personable. Prayer is not mindfulness. It is a conversation between us and the creator of the universe God who has the whole world in his hands knows what we need before we can even utter the word. Prayer is powerful. And so our next step on the road to discipleship after we acknowledge who Jesus is and we submit to listening to him is to continue in prayer. And so from here, Jesus and his disciples now make their way back down to Galilee to kind of like their home base in Capernaum. And now they're avoiding the crowds, remember, so that Jesus can teach them. 
But as Jesus teaches along the road, they are distracted. Some of them are worried about something called greatness. And so finally, when they get to the house in Capernaum, Jesus kind of addresses them as a parent would a wayward child. So tell me, what were you talking about along the road? They're caught in the act. And so when they come into the house, they all sit down for this family meeting. And Jesus has some few but pointed words to tell them. If anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. Now, Jesus has already told his disciples if they are to follow him, they are to deny themselves, right? They can't be first, and they don't get it. And so Jesus will illustrate exactly what it means to have a servant's heart. Tenderly, he takes a little child, and he says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not only me, but the one who sent me. So these words are kind of mysterious. How does our receiving of others, in particular little children, relate to how Jesus and the Father receive us? And I think what Jesus is really getting at here is that our doctrine, which means what we believe about God and how things work, must direct our discipleship action, what we say and do and how we treat others. And our discipleship action must directly reflect our doctrine. So if we have the doctrine that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and we are the dependent children of God, our Heavenly Father, and it is through His grace alone that we stand firm in Him, then as we disciple others and care for others and walk along the road with Jesus, we must receive and treat others with this very same grace. Even if they're young children or those who are young in faith. And if this doctrine of grace directs our discipleship walk, you know what? It will transform us. We won't be worried about our own greatness anymore but we will be focused on the great love that God has for us and has shown us through his son. And we will be focused on the great love that he has for others and how he wants us to display that love to others. But unfortunately, Jesus's disciples don't get this. They continue to struggle with his humility issue. So much so that John who has been at the transfiguration, by the way, comes up to him and starts tattling on some other folks, not in their discipleship group, who happen to be casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And oh, by the way, they were just not able to do that. It kind of bites, stings on our hearts too. And the disciples are struggling with something called tribalism, if you think about it. Now, tribalism means that their love for their own group superseded their love of Jesus' name being proclaimed by anyone else. This is something that our society today really struggles with. And we struggle with it in the church. Here are some examples. So if we 
uh, if we are in a particular group or follow a particular pastor or political party or denomination, and then we start talking wrongly and demonizing other people not in our discipleship group, then maybe we're proclaiming ourselves rather than the name of Jesus. You see, tribalism doesn't fit with what Jesus instructed us to do, to deny ourselves and to be servants of all. And therefore, tribalism kills our witness about who Jesus is, and it kills our witness of the gospel. As it says in John 3.16, for God so loved the whole world, not just a particular section of it. And for that reason, because he loved the whole world, he has sent his one and only son that whomsoever all who believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And discipleship harms our disciple, sorry, tribalism harms our discipleship of others because sometimes and subtly we can be more focused on making people look and act like us rather than making them look and praying for them to look like Jesus. And therefore, we make people in our own image and not in the image of God. And that's idolatry. And so as disciples of Jesus, whenever we hear the Lord's name being proclaimed in grace and truth, we should rejoice in it. It doesn't matter who is doing the proclaiming and if they're in our group or not. And Jesus says this, For one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose their reward. There are so many in our church and in our world and in our community and in our neighborhood who need a cup of water from that well that never runs dry. And sometimes, as followers of Jesus, recognizing that we are sinners saved by grace, we have to look into that cup that we're offering to others and say, what's in it? Is it me? Is it my tribe? Or is it the name of Jesus, the name that's above every other name, and the only name we can turn to? So on this road of discipleship, remember that we are called to service, not greatness, And that our doctrine must direct our discipleship. And our discipleship must reflect our doctrine. And to top it all off, Jesus' instruction at the end here intensifies. He says, So therefore, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It would be better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell. To the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It would be better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of heaven with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Now, this is some of Jesus' most drastic teaching about amputations. But I think what it means is not that we're supposed to self-mutilate, but that we are supposed to be willing to sacrifice our most valued possessions and those habits or tendencies that are second nature, that are born with us like an arm and a leg. 
and an eye in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. There are so many lists of what these things are in the New Testament. I'll read from you uh, Galatians 5, 19 through 21, where Paul gives us this list of things that we should cut off without question. The acts of flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and sorcery, hatred, discord, jealousy, rage, rivalries, divisions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And I warn you, as I did before, that these, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Again, many of these things, to me, sound like my own human nature. And you know, society is going to help us to think about it like that. These are just part of being a human person. I'm human, you're human, everybody's a human. Yes, we are. And that's why Jesus came to save us. And so Jesus says, if we're to follow him, we must deny ourselves. We must cut these things off so that we can truly bring him in and receive him as he has received us if we believe and put our faith in him. As Jesus says, what good is it if we gain the whole world, but we forfeit our souls? And if we think this is a drastic request, it is. But we must remember that God the Father was willing to cut off God the Son in order to bring us, his wayward children, into his kingdom. And so whatever it is that the Holy Spirit is calling upon you in your heart to cut off today, take it to the Lord in prayer. He will be faithful. The Holy Spirit will come and amputate off whatever you need. He's the master surgeon of our hearts. And so in in the end, Jesus calls us to be like salt. And so for those of you, maybe some kids out there, does anybody know what the chemical formulation of salt is? You know, Moses? Sodium chloride. Very good. So actually, it's impossible for salt to be anything other than sodium chloride. I mean, there's other salts, right? But, but sodium chloride is just sodium and chloride. So how can a salt become unsalty? Does anybody know? There have to be impurities that get in between that ionic bond that, that holds the sodium and the chloride together. And so what I think Jesus is saying here in a different way than the amputation is like, don't let anything get added in to that bond between you, the the disciple, and your rabbi, Jesus. And if you look back, this list on the road to discipleship points out those things that get in between us and following Jesus. Do we really accept Jesus as our Lord and rabbi? Are we willing to submit to him, not only as our savior, but as our Lord, who gets to tell us what to do? Are we willing to listen to him and not argue, just obey him? Are we trying to act like Jesus without asking for the power of the Holy Spirit to work through us in prayer and transform us? Do we think because we can do these things, that we're great stuff, that just because we get to be associated with Jesus and be on his team, that we get like the jersey and we get the glory. No, we have to follow him to the road to the cross 
where he died a death of shame. We have to be willing to be last of all and servant of all as he was. And then we really have to look at what we believe. We have to check for those potholes along the road where maybe we don't, we don't know what the Bible says about certain things or how we should feel or believe about things. And that's wisdom. And we, and we don't do that alone. We do that with reading God's word, with studying it our whole lives, with being with one another in fellowship. And asking people, hey, does, does what I believe here, is it right? And does it direct what I do? Does it direct how I think, how I spend my time, and how I disciple others? And, how, and then I have to look back at, like, what are my actions, and how do I discipleship, do discipleship of others? Am I trying to make people in the image of me, or am I trying to, for, for us all to be image bearers of Jesus? And then finally, we have to ask ourselves, what are we willing to give up to walk this road? What are we willing to have the Holy Spirit amputate off so that even if we're lame, we can still enter into the kingdom of heaven? And I wanted to say that this is hard, and it doesn't happen fully on this side of heaven. Sometimes it can feel like that game you used to play at the arcade, the whack-a-mole, where it like comes up again and you have to whack it down again. But we have a promise and a hope that one day when we're in the presence of God, all of those things that, that we have to lay aside again will be gone forever when we're in his presence. And we see Jesus again in his transformed glory. So as you can tell, being on this road of discipleship with Jesus is no easy road. And it's not just one step where we leap into God's kingdom. We have to go lame, half blind, arms off, following our master, our rabbi, and our savior in prayer. We must cast off those sins that so quickly entangle us and fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. This is what it means to take up our cross and follow him. This is what it means to deny ourselves and bear the name of Jesus. We must do so by listening to him and in prayer. Then Jesus concludes with this. Have salt in yourselves. Don't grow weary. And be at peace with one another. You don't disciple alone. And so while we wait to see Jesus in his forever transfigured glory, we journey not alone but together with grace and forgiveness. Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. He will see us through on this journey. And I wanted to end with this daily prayer that Mother Teresa would pray on her journey. And I hope that it's our prayer too. Dear Jesus, help me to spread thy fragrance everywhere I go. Flood my soul with thy spirit and love. Penetrate and possess my whole being so utterly that all of my life may only be a radiance of thine. Shine through me so that in me, that every soul I come in contact may feel thy presence in my soul. Let them look up and see no longer me but only Jesus. Stay with me, and then I shall begin to shine as you shine, 
and so to shine as to be a light to others.